was a terrorist attack waiting to happen, and it could have been and should have been stopped. Well, welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Well, have you uh, forgotten about the Florida, Fort Lauderdale Airport terrorist? Uh, or is it still on your, um, in the front of your mind? I'm asking this because it is now no longer on the front pages of Google or of newspapers. It is, you would think, <laughs> if someone landed in America today, they wouldn't know that it happened. And that is outrageous because we can't, we can't um, forget about very uh, horrendous attacks of terror, or this will contribute to them continuing to happen again. Now today I'm gonna to be talking with you about the um, Fort Lauderdale terrorist and uh, profiling him and taking you on a journey through his life and all the places where he could have been and should have been stopped. So let's, um, let's start with his birth. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know that he was gonna be a terrorist when he was born. His name is Esteban Santiago. He was born in New Jersey. Um, and he went, when he was two years old, he moved to Puerto Rico. He's now 26. Um, there hasn't been, you know, it's so many people, it's been really difficult, even when there were reports about this, for information to come out. One, because a lot of the people that the media was trying to talk to didn't want to talk about him. And two, because the media is purposely hiding things. I'm going to get to what they're hiding later on, um, specific kinds of things, but in general, they are hiding this attack. And uh, it took forever. If you were listening to the attack when it went on, which was last Friday, um, and it took hours, it was being recorded live on the internet and in my podcast, my last podcast, you will hear me talking about it some, whatever I knew at the time, which at the time that I was doing the podcast, it was still going on. So there wasn't very much that we knew in terms of his background. But... Um, why is it that this is now on the last page of news? Um, is it denial? We, um, you know, we're, we're, as we get more frightened of terrorist attacks because they are coming uh, faster and closer, uh, there is a natural psychological uh, um, feeling, uh, desire to, um, to, to not want to hear it, to, you know, put our, put our fingers in our ears and say, la, 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 you know, to not want to hear about this, like little kids do. Don't, don't talk to me about this. <laughs> but um, if, we don't, if we don't examine the profiles of the terrorists, we're not going to be able to stop them in the future. So, you know, besides uh, denial, uh, another reason why it's not front page is because of political correctness. Now, 
you may remember when the attack was going on, some of the people at the airport, you know, the, the travelers were saying um, that he was a white guy. I remember this woman right at the beginning was talking about, because they were, she was trying to make the distinction, like he couldn't be a terrorist because he was a white guy. Of course, as it turns out, he's Hispanic, but um, so he, he Caucasian, I mean, you know, they were, the point, they were trying to say, everybody was trying to say that this isn't a terrorist, the kinds of typical terrorists that we imagine who are from the Middle East. But as we know, there are lots of uh, homegrown terrorists who can be Caucasian, Hispanic, or anything else. Um, the other thing is, and I've been reading, doing some research into this, um, apparently, even though there have been some terrorist ties discovered not long after the attack itself, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you about some of these things that aren't in the mainstream press. Um, apparently Obama <laughs> did not want to, his legacy to get any worse by having it known that there was another terrorist attack on his watch. So he has been trying to, as he did before, he has been trying to quiet the media and telling them not to jump to conclusions, you know, jump to conclusions. It was a week ago, and there's a lot of information that is already known, but trying to get the media to not tell us everything. Now, that's dangerous for a lot of reasons. So, um, so we need to, to call for, and that's what I'm, my, the, what I'm trying to, why I'm doing this today, what I'm trying to get you to do <laughs> is to demand that the media tell us the truth when they know it up front. I don't mean, um, you know, um, irresponsible reporting that just throws things out there without any, uh, any research. But um, certainly that when they do come upon things and certainly uh, labeling them, you know, it, describing what their source is so that we know and we can decide for ourselves whether we think it's very credible or not. Um, but there needs, there needs to be that coming forth much sooner. Plus, there needs to be um, the FBI, and I've talked about this before, but the FBI needs to step up its game because they let him slip through the cracks, Esteban, as they have let Lots of other terrorists, terrorists slipped through the cracks, Omar Mateen being a particularly relevant one since that was the Orlando nightclub um, shooting. Uh, and the, the CIA, the VA, and most of all, what I am most angry about is psychiatrists. There are so many, oh, I shouldn't be saying this, but, but it's the truth and you need to know. There are so many um, psychiatrists who don't know what they're talking about and don't know what they're doing, like the ones who let Esteban Santiago slip through their fingers. And so I'm going to be calling for a law that will require psychiatrists to report when they have patients like Esteban Santiago. So that's where we're going, folks. Now, to get there. Um, to look at his story, to, to go through a timeline of Esteban, to go back to that, um, he, he was, when he was, uh, when he was growing up in Puerto Rico, he, uh, 
was, uh, you know, ha had a quiet life, but he, there were, there were no signs before he joined the military. Well, I mean, there actually, there, there were sort of subtle signs that uh, he had some kind of mental illness. And, and um, what, what I have diagnosed him as having is schizophrenia, um, and I'll explain why. And he may also have PTSD on top of that, but he doesn't need to have had or to have PTSD for um, the for him to for him to um, be as psychotic as he is, and um, and in any case, there was just the trauma of being he had a trauma while he was in the military, and that in itself, whether it's PTSD or not, um, would have been enough to have caused schizophrenia to manifest itself. So when he was in Puerto Rico, he was, uh, he, he was kind of a loner. And that is one of the signs, one of the early signs of someone who's going to develop schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a genetic disorder. You inherit it from parents or grandparents. It doesn't have to be parents. You don't have to have schizophrenic parents. They could be grandparents or aunts or uncles or cousins. It could be far away in the family tree. But the genetic makeup um, could be passed down the family tree, and really only those people who have um, uh, sufficient trauma, have inherited enough of the genetic makeup, and have sufficient trauma to make it manifest itself will develop full-blown schizophrenia. You know, um, there, if, when there are people who take drugs, for example, um, and who have this predisposition can, can make the, the uh, schizophrenia manifest. So in, uh, in 2007, um, Esteban joined the Puerto Rico National Guard. And in 2010, he was deployed to Iraq. He was in an engineering battalion fixing bridges and clearing improvised explosive from roads. And that was where his biggest trauma occurred because he saw two of his friends blown up by an explosive device. And that is what um, people are attributing um, his, the, the major trauma that he had. I mean, he wasn't physically injured, but he certainly was devastated when right in front of him, he saw his two friends. And these were men who were like mentors. They were, they were older and they were mentors to him and to the others in his uh, troop. So then in February 2011, he, his stint in Iraq was over. Um, and people, his relatives say that when he returned, he was a changed man. For example, his uncle said when he came out of Iraq, he wasn't feeling too good. His aunt said he was hospitalized after returning from Iraq. He lost his mind. Now, a girlfriend of his in Puerto Rico said that um, he was suffering from mental illness, and when they went to the VA to try to get him help, he didn't get um, any or uh, enough, certainly, help. Now, it's unclear. There's, you know, it, it's unclear where this hospitalization was, um, whether it was in Puerto Rico, whether it was connected to the VA, or what, but uh, certainly, certainly the VA did not, you know, when, when people come out of um, 
of the military, uh, they, if they have some kind of mental illness, whether it's caused by, either caused by the being deployed, such as PTSD, or even um, if they're just the trauma of being at the front lines or in the military, cause them to have some underlying psychiatric disorder manifest itself, they are entitled to receive benefits. Now I've, I've written up, I've done evaluations and written up reports for veterans who, um, in fact, one that I can think of um, off the top of my head, it was a, a man who did have an underlying psych genetic predisposition to schizophrenia. And when he was in the military, um, that stress, you know, when he was in the war zone, that stress is what uh, caused the schizophrenia to, to show itself. And he was uh, discharged from the military. And then um, he, the problem is that when, not only is it difficult, as you probably have heard, there's all these scandals about the VA hospitals and long waiting lists and people, veterans committing suicide uh, at alarming rates because they're not able to get treatment. But also when veterans try to claim benefits, particularly psychiatric benefits for their service, the VA makes them go through such hoops they try to deny benefits because, because they don't want to pay. <laughs> so um, for this example of this man who I evaluated and wrote a report for, I mean, he needed to get, and this is what you have to do, the veterans have to get a lawyer who specialize in appealing, you know, once they're turned down and sort of routine that they're turned down when they ask for these benefits, um, they need to get a lawyer to then try to fight their case and they need to get a psychiatrist like myself to write a whole evaluation. So um, he eventually, he did get benefits. Um, but you know, the thing is at the times that uh, these, these veterans come out and they need psychiatric treatment and help and they're not getting it from the VA and they need, they need benefits to try to get an attorney to try to get, to, to try to get help. I mean, to do the appeal to get the benefits. They're usually once they, they come out of the military and they're, and they're mentally ill or having, you know, various kinds of psychological problems, they're not in great shape to work. So it's just a whole vicious cycle. Anyhow, poor Esteban, and I know what you're thinking, and you're going to be hearing me be very sympathetic towards him during this um, podcast, because, uh, because I mean, you know, I know it seems very weird that I, the terrorist therapist, <laughs> would be sympathetic towards these terrorists. However, in this particular case, as I'm going to elucidate for you, he slipped through the cracks on so many occasions where he tried to get help. Um, and so, yes, I think that had people been doing their job along the way, he would not have been at the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting everybody. Uh, well, he didn't shoot everybody. <laughs> he, shoot, he shot a lot of people. Five of them died. He injured a lot more. And um, it's, it's not, you know, we don't know how many of the injured um, will go on to have serious or, well, they had life-threatening um, problems. So I you know, we're, we're going to, that's still, the jury is still out to see what becomes of them. So um, he comes back, he doesn't get help at the VA. Uh, he then 
moves in November 2014, he moves to Anchorage, Alaska with his brother, and he joins the Alaska National Guard. Um, he becomes a, a member of the inactive Ready Reserve, and that's when he moves to, uh, to Anchorage and joins the Na Alaska National Guard. He also, originally he worked at McDonald's, um, and then he started working at a security company, Signal 88, and he was making $2,100 uh, a month, which isn't bad in, for where he was living. Um, I mean, you know, it isn't, the, uh, the, the cost of living isn't as high there, so that should, should have been okay. Um, and then he finds a girlfriend. And he um, has a 40-year-old 40 girlfriend, um, and they have a baby together whom they na name Pierre. Um, and then in January 2016, he, his girlfriend reports that he tried to strangle her because um, he, he smashed through her bathroom door, he broke it down, he yelled at her, and he tried to strangle her and he was charged with assault and criminal mischief. And then in February, he's arrested again, and he's found in violation of the terms of his release because he went back to living at his girlfriend's residence right after he got out of jail when he was arrested the first time for domestic violence. Then there are other kinds of skirmishes with the police um, and, uh, uh, in, while he's in Atlanta, in Alaska, and um, he, in August of 2016, the National, Alaska National Guard fired him because um, he was a combat engineer and he was discharged for unsatisfactory performance. Now, and, you know, part of that was he was going AWOL a number of times. Now, the thing is, from the time that he came back from the military in 2011, his mental state is deteriorating little by little. And so, yes, of course, um, he, uh, you know, he, he, he's having problems in, in the um, Alaska National Guard as well, and um, problems with his girlfriend and being violent and all of that. And then, then we come to J November 7th of 2016. And oh, it's, what's interesting is, um, you know, they, he never really, he, he doesn't have a criminal record in, in Alaska because they kept giving him slaps on the wrist. Uh, they, you know, when he went to court for these domestic violence charges, and um, they said that he had to have anger management classes, which there's no record of, of his having completed. Maybe if, maybe if they would have supervised that a little better, he wouldn't have winded up, wound up, winded up. He wouldn't have wound up in Florida uh, creating an attack, but they didn't. And, um, and also, you know, as, as I was saying, he was supposed to, of course, not go back to being cl close with his girlfriend. Um, you know, I don't know if they were going to give him a reprieve after he uh, did the anger management classes. All of that is very, very murky. But, um, but he <laughs> moved right back in with her. And of course, um, you know, and being the father of a baby that they had together, I mean, you know, not only his wanting to be with her, but of course, I'm sure wanting to be with his son. 
Then, so then we, we come to November 7th, and that is the pivotal, pivotal time because um, he went to a, an FBI office in Anchorage, and he asked for help. He um, voluntarily walked into this office, and the uh, people in the office said that he was incoherent, he was making erratic statements, and that he told them, now get this, he told them that the CIA was forcing him to watch Islamic State propaganda videos to control his mind. The CIA was forcing him to watch Islamic State propaganda videos to control his mind. Now, when someone, that's one of the things that you ask a patient when you're trying to determine if they're schizophrenic or not. Um, do you feel that people are controlling your mind? Do you feel that people can read your mind? Do you feel that you can read other people's minds? Those are pathognomonic questions for schizophrenia. Now, um, the words Islamic State should have raised a few red flags to begin with. Um, and then, you know, saying that the CIA was forcing him to watch these uh, Islamic State propaganda videos, what, what that means um, when a patient, they don't even have to be schizophrenic, but to say that, that somebody is forcing you to do something, what that means is the patient or the person um, is trying to not have to take responsibility for whatever it is. In other words, they, what he was saying was, I don't want to watch these ISIS videos, but the CIA is making me watch them. They're controlling my mind. Now, that in itself should have been enough um, for him to be involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital for at least a month. So, but instead, what happened was the FBI um, supposedly interviewed his relatives and conducted other reviews and checked other agencies, what, what you know, very vague what they actually did. They closed their assessment of him, which doesn't make any sense because there are reports in the media, um, like what I read to you about his aunt and his uncle, and his brother has also been very vocal about him and his mental problems and, um, and, and his girlfriend. I mean, certainly if the media has been able to find some of these people, um, the CIA or the FBI should have been able to find them, and they should have been able to determine that this was a dangerous guy who should be locked up for a significant amount of time. Now, what they did do, they called the local police, and uh, the local police brought him to um, a psychiatric hospital, who <laughs> uh, did not admit him. But, well, no, let me take that back. They admitted him, uh, this is also very murky and vague, you know, uh, and, and no names have been associated with it yet, other than that it was a state hospital. Um, but they kept him for three or four days, you know, and there is a, a, um, there is a, a law that um, if somebody is a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or gravely disabled, you can hold them involuntarily for three days. Of course, you know, it's not clear that they had to hold him involuntarily for three days because he voluntarily walked into the FBI office asking for help. 
So after these three or four days, these brilliant people at this brilliant psychiatric hospital um, let him go. And not only did he tell them that the, um, the, what I said, the CIA was forcing him to watch Islamic propaganda videos to control his mind, but that he also told them that he was hearing voices, which is also pathognomonic of schizophrenia, um, unless also in, in some drugs. But anyhow, um, he said that he was hearing voices telling him to join ISIS or sympathize with ISIS or create a, a terrorist attack, words to that effect. Now, how they let him go after three or four days is just unbelievable to me. How they could have missed that, this was, that he was a terrorist attack waiting to happen. And they did. And sure enough, not long after, I mean, what they should have done is kept him in involuntarily and, and treated him, obviously. Um, and it, from, from, with his history, his early, his onset of schizophrenia, if not before the military, then certainly afterwards, um, would have, for all these years, would mean that he would need, even if there was nothing, if this had nothing to do with terrorism, but the fact that it was 2011 and it was, it was then 2016, so for at least five years, he had been battling demons of schizophrenia. You, if, if someone doesn't get help for all that time or whatever those two weeks were, whenever they were that he supposedly was in a hospital before, but that was a, a while ago, um, if someone doesn't get serious help, and obviously he was still floridly psychotic, then they need to spend, you can't just give them medication. I don't even know that they did give him medication. But you can't just give somebody medication after they're in the hospital, after being floridly psychotic, and, and they're there for three days, and you send them out with a prescription, if they did that. But you, that doesn't work in any case, because you wouldn't have gotten that person stabilized enough to count on the fact that he would take these antipsychotic medications because people don't usually do that if you haven't had them in the hospital long enough to stabilize them and to do a little therapy and to find out exactly what's going on with this person. Clearly they did not do that because um, they should have been able to, I mean, clearly they didn't find out enough about him because if they would have, have they wouldn't have let him go after three or four days. Um, the problem is that a lot of psychiatrists these days, besides being poorly trained and um, not being intuitive enough or having enough insight or being aware enough, really it goes to uh, being poorly trained because so many psychiatrists these days are, are being trained to be pill pushers rather than to do therapy. But um, in any case, if they had been better trained, but besides that, there, there's this, you know, there are these, this general trend. I mean, it was just like the letting patients go out of the state hospitals and so on, this general trend to try and, trying to get people back into the community as soon as possible, which is all well and good. I'm not against that, but you don't put somebody like Esteban Santiago back into the community after three or four days, because then you get what happened. <laughs> you get um, the attack in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, yes, it does make me furious. Um, so, um, so then, as you know, then so he did on, on January 5th, um, he then went to um, the airport 
in Anchorage. He arrived four hours early. He, the only luggage he brought was a carrying case with an automatic handgun in it. He checked that. Apparently, you are allowed to fly with guns if you check them in your luggage. Um, and he arrived at Fort Lauderdale, and um, he went to the bathroom. He loaded up his gun. You know, he was at the baggage claim. He went to the bathroom. He loaded his gun. He returned to the baggage claim area and he started shooting and um the rest the rest is history and if the media have anything to say about it it will be forgotten history now i um did my residency at nyu bellevue and i i can tell you that if he had walked into my emergency room or the bellevue emergency room when i was on call um which i was a lot uh, which all residents are at Bellevue a lot, just just in order to train them. You know, we used to bitch and moan about all the uh, on-calls we had. You know, it's, you can see if you can imagine what it's like to be in the Bellevue emergency room where the police are bringing in people um, by the carloads, literally. Um, and overnight, in other words, you started... Uh, you know, early in the evening, and you're there till the next morning. It's like seven to seven. Um, and people are brought in, mostly psychotic, suicidal, homicidal, all, and, and people are brought to Bellevue when other hospitals don't want to take them. So you get the sickest people coming there. And, um, and that's, you know, incredible training. So I could tell you, if he came into my emergency room and started talking about voices telling him to, to uh, be a, terror, a terrorist sympathizer or an ISIS sympathizer, and that the CIA was controlling his mind to watch ISIS propaganda videos, it would have taken about a half a second for me to involuntarily commit him. And, um, and he would have been kept there long enough to stabilize him. So, um, you know, you now I promised I would tell you about some other things that are coming out that the media, it's, this has been, this has been <laughs> not in the mainstream media did I read this. Um, actually, I read it on Judicial Watch. Um, there's an article uh, set that's headlined, Airport shooter converted to Islam, identified as Ashik Hamad, years before joining army. Now, I don't know, I mean, there's, a, there's this is really interesting information. I, 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 if it's true, um, it's, it's, you know, pretty scary that he didn't come to the attention of uh, the CIA or the FBI earlier. Um, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of leaning towards believing it is true, but I'm not guaranteeing that it's true. Um, we're going to have to see. But the point, but it's, the, the thing is, you know, the, the article is saying, well, um, the article is saying that, you know, he was a, an home, a homegrown terrorist even before he joined the military. And so he, all along he was planning on doing this which is possible, certainly, but it's not an either or that he was an early homegrown terrorist, even though he went into the military. Um, it's not that or he's suffering from mental illness. Uh, I mean, in other words, even if this is true, that he identified as 
he was a Muslim convert and identified with terrorist propaganda before he went to the military. Even if that's true, that doesn't mean that he's not schizophrenic. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have mental illness that should have been caught along the way before he slipped through all these cracks. So I'm going to just read you some of the things, the highlights from this article. Um, the Fort Lauderdale sh airport shooter is a Muslim convert who years before joining the U.S. Army took on an Islamic name, Ashik Hamad, downloaded terrorist propaganda and recorded Islamic religious music online according to public records dug up by the investigative news site of an award-winning California journalist. Um, this is pertinent information that the Obama administration apparently wants to keep quiet. Uh, the official it's saying, you know, meanwhile, the official story is that the gunman is mentally ill. Again, it's not either or. Um, investigators so in this story, it says investigators recovered Santiago's computer from a pawn shop and the FBI is examining it to determine whether he created a jihadist identity for himself using the name Ashik Hamad. Um, early on, a photo surfaced of Santiago making an ISIS salute and wearing a Palestinian Arab scarf. Um, Besides taking on a Muslim name, he recorded three Islamic religious songs, including the Muslim declaration, Faith, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad. Muhammad is his messenger. Uh, now, you know, I guess a lot of this depends upon whether, in fact, they can prove that this, this Islamic name, Ashik Hamad, is, in fact, um, Esteban Santiago. Well, and then, oh, and then um, it's interesting. He did have some family who lived in, near Fort Lauderdale. Like they're trying to figure out why they picked Fort Lauderdale. Um, and he does have some family that lives near there. Um, and, but the family said that they haven't seen him in quite some time or been in contact with him for quite some time. Uh, Broward County, which is Fort Lauderdale, you know, the Fort Lauderdale airport area, has a large and growing Islamic community. Um, Judicial Watch obtained records from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement that show an Al-Qaeda terrorist who helped plan several U.S. attacks lived in Broward County and graduated from a local community college with a degree in computer engineering. His name is Adnan G. L. Shukri Juma. Uh, but he also has a Hispanic identity, Javier Robles. And for years, he was on the FBI's most wanted list. Um, so, you know, I, I am not saying that this is 100% true, but I am saying that um, this is only in a few select, this is not in the mainstream media, or at least I have not yet seen this in the mainstream media. And um, they we should at least know, you know, it should at least be reported that this, that an investigation is going on about this. All right. This is the Ask the Terrorist section of the podcast where I answer your letters and emails. So I have a letter from Alex in Baltimore that says, Dear Terrorist Therapist, what is up with the news lately? I can't believe anything I read anymore. I can't tell if something is fake news or not. And it's really frustrating, and I'm getting sick and tired of the news not being honest 
whenever an attack occurs. Like last Friday, the news won't admit it's terrorism. We need to know what's really going on. And by last Friday, he's referring to the, the uh, Florida attack. Well, Alex, as you already heard, I can't agree with you more. Um, I, you know, it doesn't help anyone to not know what the truth and to not know it as soon as possible. Um, we, we, um, if we don't know the truth and we keep letting the media avoid telling us the truth, then um, we're going to be able to remain in denial but not be able to stay safe. We need to demand more alertness on the part of the FBI, on the CIA, on the VA, giving, more, giving veterans help, better help, uh, the police, and so on. So, um, and we need, most of all, what I'm calling for is to pass a law to have psychiatrists report any patient who tells them anything about having hallucinations, mind control, and other psychotic ideation about terrorism. They need to report this patient. I mean, I'm all for um, confidentiality, but these, <laughs> we have to face the times, folks. These days, uh, if some patient is psychotic and talking about things that seem to suggest that they are a terrorist attack waiting to happen, psychiatrists need to be mandated to contact the police, the FBI, the CIA, one or all of the above, and let them know who this person is so that they can then do a better investigation. My name is Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. Please don't let denial or political correctness desensitize you to terrorism.